A reading from Mark, from chapter 1, which is on page 812 in your pew Bible. They went to Capernaum, and immediately when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed. And they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Word of life, word of God. Thanks be to God. I find that most people wish they could do things they can't already do, like, oh, I wish I could speak a second language, or cook, or garden, or crochet, or have a black belt in karate, or whatever. Do you have something like this? But just because we wish we could do a thing, that doesn't mean we ever actually start to try to do the thing. So what might it take to get an old dog to learn a new trick? Like what would it take to get a non-piano playing person who's always wanted to learn to play the piano to courageously sit up to the keyboard and try? Like maybe if I sat you down at a piano and showed you a really inspirational movie about a person who was struggling in every kind of way, but the power of playing the piano changed their life. And then to follow up on that, maybe I'd have you read a brief article about studies that prove that time spent playing the piano improves mental health. People who make music experience less anxiety, loneliness, and depression. And after all that, let's say I brought in the most fun piano teacher on earth who gives their best pitch to you, invites you to learn to play, and then assures you you can. After all that, appealing to your heart, your mind, your soul, having received a personal invitation, could you then stand up and just walk away from that piano without just even a little plunk? This is what Mark the Gospel writer is trying to do with his good news. Mark knows his audience has waited for centuries to find and follow the Anointed One, the Messiah. Mark's world is a pain-filled, scared world loaded with injustices and violence and despair, but also Jesus. The long-awaited Son of God came, lived, died, and didn't stay dead. Mark and his fledgling church have a story to tell and a faith to share. He knows his people have always wanted to do this thing, and now the thing, faith, is available. So what do you do? How do you get everybody to start playing? Mark writes a gospel. I imagine him to wonder, what if I used a gospel to show them how wonderful it would be to embrace the faith of Jesus? What effect 
the faith of Jesus will have on their soul and how capable they really are of sharing in the faith of Jesus. Already, now. Mark knows his audience always wanted to learn to follow a Messiah, but couldn't. So first he wants to make clear to them that God has responded to their pain-filled, fear-filled, violent lives of despair through Jesus. And second, Mark wants to invite them and you, to play this piano, to practice this faith, to follow this Jesus. Here's what God did. Here's what you can do. Now, want to play? And so Mark throws every clever trick he knows into the way he writes this gospel. Dramatic stories with the most extreme characters. One guy in chapter 5 lives among the tombs, has wrenched apart chains meant to subdue him, and howls at the moon all night. Oh, and Mark tells the most satisfying stories of Jesus, saying all the things most people wish they could say to people in power, the Pharisees and others, making them look so wonderfully foolish. The shape of the plot, the order of who gets introduced first and how they get introduced. The gospel of Mark is genius. And every bit of wit is meant to take advantage of the precious moment Mark has with each listener who finds their attention drawn to his story that he knows must tell you what God did through Jesus and invite you to practice this faith too. Follow this Jesus too. There is an urgency about the gospel of Mark. He wants us to know that now is the time to stop waiting, to stop looking around, and to start following, start being new. Our text for worship today comes from the very first chapter of Mark and does all these things in one story. It shows what God did through Jesus. It shows urgency. And it shows that the time for waiting and watching is over. The time for being new has begun. They went to Capernaum, and Jesus immediately enters the synagogue, and he starts teaching. And just then, a man with an unclean spirit, and this guy comes straight out of a horror movie. He just cries out, like, I want you to imagine this really scary, awful voice. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Like, He's using first-person plural, us. This is a singular person talking. So is Jesus going to cower? Is he afraid? Of course not, because Mark, the gospel writer, has prepared us for this face-off by building Jesus up as a pretty tough customer himself. When Jesus was baptized, just a few verses before this story, it was not some warm and fuzzy moment that we might associate with a baptism. Because, you know, the way we do it, we sing, Jesus loves me, and it's beautiful. And when Jesus was baptized, Mark says the heavens were schizomenous. They were ripped apart, the heavens were. And then God says, this is my beloved. And then the Spirit immediately ballowed, that is, threw Jesus into the wilderness where Jesus was tempted by Satan and was with the wild beasts and angels waited on him. Like, I got to tell you, the soundtrack to the Gospel of Luke 
might be more like a kind of a bright Broadway musical, Mark's gospel would sound metal. <laughs> Baptized, tempted. And now they come to this synagogue where this demonic guy interrupts the teacher during worship. Have you come to destroy us? Jesus was just in the wilderness with wild beasts being tempted by Satan himself. Is Jesus afraid? No, <laughs> he's not. So Jesus just says, be silent. Come out. And this unclean spirit convulses the poor guy, cries out with a loud and terrible voice, what comes out? And they were all amazed. Like the look on everybody's face would be. It's a dramatic story. And the storyteller knows he needs to be dramatic to get to the people who are maybe listening to his story. Because it's in the Bible, we might not allow for the Gospels to have such personality in our imaginations, but I'm telling you, the Gospel of Mark, the first Gospel written, was a blockbuster that changed the way the church and the people of the world would understand who God is and what God did and what we can do now. In this first chapter, Mark makes it clear that Jesus has come on the scene for an apocalyptic battle. By that I mean that the story of Jesus is the story of God's beloved one facing off against evil and winning. In fact, it's not even a real contest. Jesus wins all the battles and the war. Even the cross, where evil thinks it has won, Jesus turns that instrument of death into the throne of victory, where by suffering, by remaining humble, by loving unto death, Jesus demonstrates that's true power threatening, doing violence, Jesus, show, Jesus shows that that's weak. At best, it's temporary. It's unimaginative, and it can't be sustained. Persecution and name-calling, true power results in mutual devotion and love, not mutual disdain and hate. Vanity and pleasure-seeking do not lead to true joy, but always keep people feeling Scarcity leaves people wanting more, leaves people living with fear of losing. Jesus is willing to suffer, remains humble, and loves, even in the face of hate, to announce that true power is what he's doing, and that is steadfast resistance. That is always resisting lies. Jesus resists the lie that is violence and instead persists to build community. Jesus resists serving himself and instead serves the neighbor. Jesus lives so totally, so completely in the true power of God that unclean spirits, like this one in today's story, must obey him. Death can't contain him because it too is false. Death is a lie that Jesus proves to be empty. Life is what is true, and so he lives, because he is the truth. The good news today that Mark wrote nearly 2,000 years ago is that the Son of God showed up. The long-awaited Messiah arrived, and when he did, by practicing steadfast resistance, he freed the whole world from powerful forces that convinced us that we should only welcome some. 
that it's up to us who the few are who deserve to be called God's people. And he exposed the lie that each of us is responsible only for ourselves, that it's only all about me. All the stuff, Mark may have assigned more personality to the stuff, he'd have said all the demons, that try to divide our community, make us serve ourselves, and love only some. Jesus told all of them, be silent. Come out. Which makes us free and able to live anew now as much as that man with the unclean spirit in the story. And that's what First Lutheran is for. A place where a group of people in 2024 remind each other as often as we gather that Jesus lived, died, and didn't stay dead, which exposes the lies of false power. Lies that still get powerfully put in our face every day of our lives. We are told over and over to hate them, be afraid of those people, judge that one, show yourself superior to them, have more, take more, keep more, live for more, as though that's the point. Mercy is weak, might makes right, follow your heart. These are all lies that only lead us back to ourselves who are only dust, and to dust we shall return. First Lutheran is a place where a group of people in 2024 remember together the truth that welcoming all, as hard and messy and imperfect as our welcome is, that striving to welcome all frees us from the burden of having to figure out who gets excluded. How fast do we exclude them? How bad do we make them feel once we exclude them? Together, we remember that building community frees us from the lonely echo chambers the world makes us think we'd rather be in. All those silos that keep us from learning and growing and connecting and thriving. At First Lutheran, we remember the truth, that the way, the truth, and the life is serving our neighbor, not grasping at some selfish Christian nationalism. Martin Luther challenged people to return to their baptism every day. And what he meant by that was that it's a daily struggle, immersed in the lies of this world, to remember the truth. He knew it's hard to live as free as we actually are. It's a daily challenge to steward our God-given freedom from sin, from death, from the power of the devil. Does that make sense? That each of us has the freedom to steward our Christian freedom? In Christ, we're spiritually free, forgiven at baptism, included and fed with a family of faith at the rail, known and claimed by God with a promise of ongoing relationship beyond death burdened in all the ways we busy people are, we, First Lutheran, are lucky enough to have received a version of the good news of God that is 100% grace. Pastor Karen and I never stand up here and threaten you or your soul with damnation because that would be a lie. And all of us together use words and behave as often as we can in ways 
that proclaim we actually believe God loved the world so much that God already saved it. First Lutheran takes the Bible more seriously than most every other church I know because we don't act like the world needs to be saved. We believe God already did. And we also believe that the world needs to be loved. And that's where we get to come in. God so loved the world that God saved it, God freed it, and in that freedom, we get to love that world too. We get to make choices about how we will love the world as God so loved the world. We get to make choices about how we will follow God's lead. Those choices, we call that stewardship. What we do with this God-given freedom all the time. Our church's stewardship response, our together response, is our welcome statement. Basically, we welcome all, we build community, we serve our neighbor. The other clear statement of our church's stewardship response is our budget. We choose to support a paid staff that leads faith formation and lots of other stuff. We choose to maintain a campus that serves not only ourselves, but the whole Onalaska community. And we choose to give away more than 11% of every dollar that is given to First Lutheran. We give it to Lutheran social services and campus ministry and Sugar Creek Bible Camp and to our synod. All these ministries that do so many things we can't possibly do all by ourselves. First Lutheran has discerned a robust stewardship response. And we together can and should feel really good about it. Today's Stewardship Sunday, and my goal with this month-long effort that builds toward this day, when we invite you to complete an intent card, is for you and your family to feel as good about your thoughtful, robust stewardship response as your church family does. That can only happen, of course, if you take the time to really prayerfully consider what to do with what you have. What is a meaningful response from you? After looking around your life, recognizing your gifts, whether they be time or energy or money, what would a robust, significant response look like from you and yours so that you can feel really good about it? That's what would be a successful stewardship campaign to me, is if we walked in these doors every week and we're like, I'm a part of this because this is special. This is God-given. And I offer significance to this family of faith. Maybe your stewardship response includes regular worship. I mean, I'm literally preaching to the choir here, right? Here you are. And it is most certainly a choice to be here. But it's a choice that not only serves yourself, but it serves every other person in this place. Another aspect of our stewardship response is to figure out what gifts I'm going to contribute to the community. We have a group of middle schoolers and high schoolers. You might have noticed them. They volunteer at a lot of stuff that we do. They cook. They serve meals most Wednesday nights. They work their butts off at parents' night out every month on Friday. They were like, a million kids, I think, there were here. They do projection oftentimes during worship on Sundays. Few of them are learning to do the live streaming. 
those fly kids, that's the first Lutheran youth, they're not giving the church thousands of dollars each year. But their energy, their willingness to serve is priceless. Their choice to be church is a stewardship choice. What can I contribute to this community that reminds me of the good news amidst the lies of this world? Your answer is your stewardship response. Whether it's showing up to worship or volunteering time and energy or giving generously, it's all a stewardship response. You are free to give however you discern to give. As your pastor, I'm simply asking that you really do the work of discernment. That is, thinking about it and feeling about it. So that you feel as good about your stewardship response as your church family does. As I do. Set aside some real time. Today would be best. If not today, another time. Put it on your calendar, though to ask, what can I contribute to my family of faith? Maybe you think in terms of a percentage of your income. That's what my family does. We had worked for years to get to 10% of our income, and in our 40s, we got there. And it feels good to have arrived at our goal. Maybe I should set a higher goal. Maybe you think in terms of increasing what you give or how you engage with your church as compared to last year. That can work too. Maybe things have changed in life one way or the other and you need to step back or can step further into volunteering or serving in some capacity. Now is a great time to let us know that. To be clear, I'm not as interested in the results of your stewardship discernment as I am in you doing the work of asking what can I contribute to my Christian community so that you feel really good about a meaningful level of generosity and engagement. Together we get to be a part of a church that's thriving, a church that changes lives. Somehow the Holy Spirit has sat us down together at this religious piano that we have heard can play beautiful faith. We've been freed by God to become Liberace or Gabe or whatever famous pianist you can think of. My point is we've been freed to welcome, love, and serve. We get to be generous in all the ways. Thanks be to God. Amen.